Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Pastor Douglas Wilson and Dr. James White on Paul, Romans, and textual variants. This conversation is part of a series called The Sweater Vest Dialogues. Watch the full series now on Canon Plus. Doug, it's been a little while since we got together last, and I, I'll have to admit, I was gonna, I was gonna try to get in touch with you and try to encourage you, to try to get a little bit more done. Um, you know, um, it just seems like, you know, once the cold weather arrives up there in Idaho, maybe just slow down a little bit. You know, I, I, yeah. I don't know. It just, just seems like, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm always sitting there with my phone looking at the Canon app going, okay, I'm, I'm waiting. Where's, where's the next uh, blog and may blog, you know? And, and then I find out you're, um, you're putting together commentaries on Romans. And I, I'm like, I, that's called entering in uh, that, you know, fools enter in where uh, angels where fear to angels tread fear or something tread, yeah. along those, those lines. Um don't, don't we have enough commentaries on Romans about now, don't you think? No. No? Well, we, we do now. <laughs> there, there was just one short. There was, a, there was one little area. It was just, just missing one little piece. Got it, got it, got it. So now, now let, me, let me take a wild guess because um, I'm not going to sit here and claim that I've read every word of To the Church in Rome. A commentary on Paul's greatest epistle. I'm not sure. I, I wonder if Paul would agree with that analysis. That would be interesting to ask someday. I think if you ask him, he'd probably go, "Now nah, Philemon" or something like that. But um, uh, I, I remember, and you remember well, hopefully, um, <clears throat> a very warm Sunday uh, in Moscow. Um, I don't. I'm not sure yes. if it was 2022 or 2021, but recently yeah and uh i i was preaching the early service and you were preaching the the second service and so yes you all have extensive bulletins i mean you all you all must get started on those things uh way way earlier than we do at apologia <laughs> let's put it yeah. that way we're, we're putting those together you know on saturday night and um i i'm looking at it and there's this section and for you, there is, I mean, a very, ex I wouldn't even, I'm not sure if I'd call them notes as, as it would yeah. be a, a, a super full outline or, I mean, there, there was a lot of material in the bulletin for your sermon. Right. And then you go to the earlier uh, part of the bulletin for my thing and it's, Lots of place to take notes, um, much, much <laughs> open space for the taking of notes, because yes. I generally, as you've probably seen, don't use notes. And so trying yeah. to provide notes when you don't actually have them yourself, sort of tough to do. So that, that's right. I, I'm getting the feeling that uh, that what you what you all did is you it, it, did you use that as your as your outline, as your. Uh, you know, yeah. no, that was my, that basically I preached, I preached through Romans. I I've done it. Uh, I preached through Romans at least a couple of times, but the last time I preached through Romans, I put together the sermon outlines 
and then strung them together. And that was a very early first draft. Right. Okay. And then, so, and then wrote over top of it. So, um, so before the outlines are, they present sort of like outlines or notes and they're, they're, they start and stop, uh, sort of everybody's expecting, okay, this is a sermon. I'm not expecting transitions and that sort of thing. Right. Uh, so I take the, um, uh, take the sermon outlines, put them all together and then right over, right over top of them to make it more like, um, prose. Right. So when, when people think of commentaries these days, um, it is interesting because, you know, you're, uh, I, I know, for example, uh, a lot of John MacArthur's material is his sermons, not necessarily with the outlines that, that you have. He, he, I don't think he provides a kind of outline that, that, that you do. Uh, that, that takes a lot of discipline, a lot of work. Um, but a lot of them are uh, taken from, you know, transcripts of, of sermons and things like that, and then filled out, edited, right. and turned into, right. and that's, that's, that's not uncommon. Um, but those tend to be, uh, obviously sermonic ex, uh, expositional, expository, things like that. I, I just right. went into the other room and just grabbed off my shelf, Thomas Schreiner's, uh, for the, from the ECNT on Romans. And it's like, I don't know, uh, you know, 900 pages long and, you know, appendices and enough footnotes to, you know, choke a large size horse and stuff like that. So there's a, there's a, there's a spectrum that people expect. Right. And these days, um, it just seems like most of what comes out is, I, I don't know. Uh, the vast majority of the people in the, in the, in the pew, if they were to find a Christian bookstore anymore um, and were to buy something like this would really struggle right. to get to the point of, well, what is the text actually saying because of all of the background and the disputations right. and, and, and stuff like that. So are you trying to provide something that's significantly more useful or you just have a completely different audience in mind? I have. Um, so people who write commentaries like that, my response is God bless them. Um, but basically it's oftentimes scholars writing for scholars or um, scholars writing for pastors where the scholar has done a lot of the exegetical spade work and it's used, it can, and can be used very fruitfully by pastors to check their work or as a reference work, or, you know, look at the different uh, views on this particular thorny passage. Uh, but I think that commentaries ought to be for the people uh, for the people of God. So the, the people that you preach Romans to, well, they know how to read. Why can't why can't they read a, a commentary? Or and if the sermons were a blessing to your people, then maybe they'll be a maybe the basic thrust of what you're saying is going to be a blessing to others who weren't there. So I I want um, I want to write commentaries for the average, well-read, well-educated Christian layman. Right. And and if if a pastor if a pastor picks up my commentary and uh, uses it, the chances are pretty good 
that he's going to be using it nine times out of 10. He's going to be using it for an illustration or a homiletical twist rather than a deep, deep exegesis. Um, because I don't do that. You, you don't do that in the sense of writing those types of commentaries. Uh, right. I don't do that. It, it, that doesn't show up in print. Right. What, I, what I want to do is say, here's the text. This is what the text says. I summarize what the text says. And then I drill down two or three different areas that are of interest from that text and move on to the next passage. Right, right. Okay, so <clears throat> um, you want people to be able to, you know, when uh, I did, I looked it up recently um, over a number of years when I did Hebrews, I think there were 86 sermons, something like that. Um, you don't happen to remember how many you did in Romans, do you? Oh boy. 60 maybe. Okay. All right. Yeah. So <clears throat> a number of, a number of years worth, uh, in, in a particular book, um, you're doing it with the same folks. And so you can hope anyways, I sort of assume, I sort of have to assume, I guess, that people listening to my sermons out of Hebrews chapter 11 um, recognize that I did chapters one through 10. <laughs> so, so yeah. I'm, I'm not going to be re rebuilding all the foundations and, and, and all the rest of that stuff. And that's the wonderful thing about being in the same fellowship in the same church is right. you can, you can hope that that foundation is, is already there and hence right. can, um, not have to go back over as much as you would have to otherwise. Now Correct. we, right. we know though, you've got lots of visitors. We've got lots of visitors. Um, you get new people coming in and they, they started in Romans chapter five. And so, all right, you know, sure. There's, there's going to be that, that aspect of things too. But <clears throat> the idea is by the time you get, I, I'll put it this way. I was, I, and a number of the people in the congregation had that strange, I just got to the end of the book feeling when we got to the end of mm -hmm. Hebrews, it was sort of like, Oh, well, we're done. Um, yeah. I sort of feel bad about that. <laughs> you know, can, can we just go back to the beginning, you know? Yeah. Um, right. but, but you want your people to have that feeling. I, I think, it, I think it was good that I had that feeling. I know, I know preaching Hebrews raised it way up in my uh, hierarchy of, of books. It really, really did. Right. And in fact, just just for the fun of it here, where where do you where do you land on the authorship of Hebrews? Since we're talking Romans, and you said it was Paul's greatest epistle, uh, yes. Where, where the close second, the close second of his greatest epistle would be Hebrews. <laughs> okay, so so you do believe do you believe he wrote it in the language we have today, or do you believe that it was maybe preached in Hebrew or Aramaic and Maybe Luke's the one that wrote it down because the the style, the grammar, the yeah. syntax, the vocabulary is completely different. It's Lucan. It is so. If you read Luke and Acts and go to Hebrews, you're like, yeah, hmm, okay, yeah, this is this is the same stuff. What do you think? Well, I think Paul had to write it because otherwise, the, our only alternative is a first century early feminist. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you just do that for the canon clip that's going to come out just to see just to see how i respond to that or what 
So basically, uh, feminists today, you got an anonymous book in the New Testament. So feminists uh, latch onto it and say, oh, Priscilla had to have re- Priscilla had to have written it. OK. okay. Um, so, so in the in the order of um, uh, likelihood, I, well, I, I believe that it's likely notes from a disciple of Paul's who uh, listened to the talk, followed the talk wrote the notes down. And uh, so I think it's not Pauline in the sense of a, a second century devotee of Paul writing the book. Right. But I think it's, I think it's Paul's argument, Paul's material, Paul's thinking and Paul's um, I, I think the, the structure, everything about it is Pauline except for the final edited form. Yeah. And, and that's why, that's why I go with Luke because uh <clears throat> I, I, you know, no one can prove this. Uh, was it, was it Luther? It said, you know, no one knows God knows. Um, but it just seemed, it just, uh, what I've sort of viewed it as is, well, uh, great sermon, but people other than the Hebrews need to hear this same stuff. And Paul's like, okay, write it down. And, um, yeah. he did in Greek in a very, very different uh, style uh, than than yeah. than Paul's Greek was, and so another another candidate would be Apollos, right, right, because right. we're we're told in in Acts that Apollos was an eloquent man, and he was mighty in the scriptures. Um, Hebrews is dense with uh, scriptural quotations. Hebrews is mighty in the scriptures, and it's an eloquent book. Um, it's it's more polished. Than Paul is in, say, Galatians. Right. Oh, although, <clears throat> yeah, but I, I think we know why Galatians, though. Um, right. <laughs> right. He, he, now, he, now, to be to be fair, to be fair to Paul, there are places where um, Paul gets to going good, and he he really ri- he can rise to certain eloquent heights, um, uh, as he, he does at the end of Romans eight. Uh, he does that it um, in First Corinthians thirteen, so he can get there, but he can also be just methodically dense, or he can be, I think, very, very much emotionally involved. Um, when when you're calling people pseudadelphoi, false brethren, right. and and you're knowing that this is going to be read in the congregation, and you know what the result of that is going to be. Um, right. I, I, it makes me when, you know, people argue about see what a large letter I've written in my own hand. And it's like, it's not all that long a letter actually in comparison to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe when he's writing his own hand, if he did in fact have some type of physical ailment that made seeing difficult. I mean, people have uh, theorized about that from some of the comments that he made, well, but it just seems to me well, that in Galatians, he skipped over verbs because he's just getting to his point because there's such a, such a, yeah. um, you know, heartfelt element to it. Yeah. Galatians is sort of white, hot, um, white, hot controversy. Uh, I, I would want to argue that it's more than a, I, I want to argue that Paul's thorn in the flesh is his eyesight Right. Um, and, uh, he tells the Galatians, if you, uh, you would have taken out your eyes and given them to me, uh, he doesn't know which speaker at the Sanhedrin is the high priest. Uh, I did not know he was the high priest 
because you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people and see what large letters I write to you with my own hand. And then for a scholar like Paul, for whom manuscripts and books were precious, uh, um, eyesight trouble really would be a thorn in the, uh, a thorn in the flesh. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I don't think we can say conclusively that Paul doesn't say, and the thorn in the, in my flesh is my eyesight, but I think circumstantial evidence would indicate that. Um, there are places where Paul just tumbles over himself, like in Galatians because of passion or in Ephesians, you know, there's, there's an incomplete sentence that he never gets around to, uh, finishing he gets distracted and moves off and that's a that's a good lesson for uh people uh, on it's a good inerrancy lesson the we don't submit the book of ephesians to a copy editor and say here find the mistakes what we do is we say the book of ephesians is the template it's the standard and so this is why we would judge the copy editor mentality as being sometimes wrong because Sometimes an incomplete sentence is exactly what you need. Right, right, right. And you want you want what the apostle uh, actually wanted to communicate to the churches, not what someone who's doing English grammar later on would rather it uh, would rather it be. Right. So all of this takes me back to um, <clears throat> you. You made the statement in the commentary. You described uh, Romans, maybe. Maybe I was reading too fast, but as a fundraising letter? Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> yeah. I said that. <laughs> I can I can see I can see the Corinthian correspondence, you know, where there's specific instructions about gathering the the, the gift for the people in Jerusalem and, and stuff like that. Right. Um I've just always, personally anyways, looked at Romans uh as well, I see a parallel between Romans and Ephesians because in the, the I see genius, spirit-led genius in Paul's missions-mindedness, in that he writes such important letters to Ephesus, and, and we know Ephesus was a major um, trade city, and so you know he spends a great amount of time there, makes sure there's a solid church there, and what's the result of that? Well, Colossae, we have no evidence yeah. that he ever went to Colossae. How did that church get started? Well, it's up the Lycus River Valley. It's going to be a natural thing. If you've got a solid church in Ephesus, the word's mm -hmm. going to spread out, and that's that's the type of thing that's going to happen. And you look at Romans, you 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 just oh, all all roads lead to Rome. Um, that that that's the most important right. place in the ancient world to have a have a solid church. And so it would seem like partly the idea is here's my gospel. Now. How much of that is also um, apologetic in the sense of um, he's he's going to Rome, uh, he's on trial, and here's here here along with Luke Acts is very clear evidence of the fact that the Christian faith is not it's subversive to Caesar abusing rulership, but it actually creates excellent citizens who will have this right. type of moral activity and, and and things like that. So where where does a fundraising letter come from? So this is where I this is how I would construct that. There are two pieces to this argument. One is that Paul is very careful not to build on another man's foundation. He 
he didn't he didn't plant the church at Rome, so he doesn't want to come into Rome as an interloper and sort of take over somebody else's work. He's being respectful of whoever whoever did plant the church there. Uh, he's being very cautious. Uh, he says at the end of the letter that he hopes to get on to Spain, out, out all the way to Spain. Uh, and that's the mission that he's on. And I think, I believe that he is uh, seeking uh, the Romans to help him on his way to Spain. So he doesn't want to come uh, to Rome and park there and build on another man's foundation. What he wants to do is stop in Rome, get acquainted with these people, and have them help him on the way to Spain. And in order for them to do that in good conscience, he has to set before them the gospel that he will be preaching in Spain. This is this is what I teach. This is this is how I explain the gospel. This is everything that I and he lays it out for them uh, so that they can in good conscience support his work. So I don't think he wants to come to Rome to uh to park there. He wants to stop in Rome on the way to Spain. And I think he's looking for the Romans to help him out, which they can in good conscience do because he's not, uh, he's not trespassing on someone else's territory. Uh, he's not building on another man's foundation and he wants their help on the way to Spain. Well, and the fact that his, his fundraising letter looks so different from our fundraising letters <laughs> is, is an indictment, I think on our fundraising letters. <laughs> well, I, I I I could agree with that, um, but but I'm I'm just really confused because uh, we we all know that um, that uh, Peter was the bishop of Rome, right? <laughs> yes, some people some people know that. Some people have been turned into into uh, flaming torches for for disagreeing with that perspective uh, in in <laughs> right. history. So, well, let me say this is one of the things that I I really enjoyed uh, including in this commentary. And I think it's a I think it's a, a devastating point for the Roman uh, Catholic Church, and that is uh, in in those chapters in the in the chapters where Paul's talking about election and the olive tree in Romans eleven. Uh, this is something that I, I don't th- I, the only person I've ever seen that made this point or this connection was uh, Bishop Ryle in the 19th century England. Uh, Ryle makes this point somewhere. Um, but the point is that that Paul is solemnly warning the Roman church that branch the Jewish branches were removed because of unbelief. And he says, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty. You don't support the root. The root supports you. Now, he is, he's just finished saying at the end of chapter 8, He's he's gone on this exultant um, hymn uh, to the sovereignty of God, and who shall lay a charge against God's elected is God who justifies. So when we're talking about elect individuals, you're, they're untouchable. They're bulletproof. Uh, no one will ever take them out of God's hand. The number of the elect individuals cannot be increased or diminished. All right. So he's just finished saying that. So then the, the Q&A section starts, and people say, well, how come the elect of God, the Jews, are chasing you around the Mediterranean trying to kill you? What about that? And then he says, well, not all Israel are Israel. There's an Israel within Israel. There, uh, and he says the same thing at the end of chapter 2 
Uh, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly, but one inwardly. And so true individual election, uh, when someone is regenerate, is something that cannot be taken away, cannot be removed. It cannot. But a corporate body can be removed. The Jews were removed. The, the unbelieving Jews were removed in his um, in his section on the olive tree. And he tells the Roman church, the same identical thing that happened to the Jews can happen to you, O Roman church. Now, here's the problem. The Roman Catholic church maintains as a point of dogma that the Roman Catholic church cannot be removed, cannot, cannot fall away. And the, and they also maintain as a point of dogma that, that individual election is, you know, the, the uh, assurance of salvation that is displayed at the end of Romans eight is inappropriate for any individual Christian. Right. right. So when Paul says uh, that basically uh, who will lay a charge against God's elect, the, the Roman church tells the individual Christian, you can't be sure of that. Right. But where Paul, so where Paul tells them to be certain, the Roman church says you must be uncertain. And where Paul tells the Roman church to be uncertain, they say, we are certain that we cannot fall away. The Roman church cannot be removed. We are the root and we support the tree. And, and the testimony against this is found in the letter to the church at Rome. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, and, it, it, and we've both taught church history, I'm, I'm sure, um, over the years. And it, it strikes me that all you have to do is read the medieval popes. And the, just the, the, the term tragedy is, is way too weak. I'm sure you would yeah. come up with a term that we'd all have to look up yeah. to... Um, uh, figure out what it what it meant, but because um, you do tend to like to do that, and I, um, I, I sort it's of a pigs. It's a pig's breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> See, <laughs> See, you can never get through blog and Mayblog all that fast uh, with a thesaurus sitting next to you. That, that's that's how it works. But but we both know that um, the the anti semitism of the medieval period of the Roman papacy is just astonishing. Uh, I mean, uh, I didn't know until just a few years ago, you know, come to think of it, maybe my church history professor did mention it, but I was, for some reason, I I've mentioned, may have mentioned it to you before, I've read a lot of books on the great mortality, what we call the Black Death today. Uh, that's not mm -hmm. what they called it back then. It's just uh, always struck me as as an amazing period of, of time and how people would have thought during that time period. But um, in one instance, I think it was in, it might have been in Switzerland, um, in that area, uh, the inhabitants of a certain area took all their Jews and put them in a building on a on a island in the middle of a lake and locked them in and then burned the building down. And mm. this was how they... Because it was very, very common. Uh, it was a very common conspiracy theory uh, of that day um, that the Jews were poisoning wells. Now, right. of course, the, the the plague was running rampant in many places that didn't have wells. So that really right. didn't make a whole lot of sense. But And, and Jews were dying of the plague. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it didn't really make any sense. But it, it, it happened. Uh, that that history of of anti-Semitism, um, it didn't stay in Rome, and uh, just and I'm not I don't want to continue with this, but it it just I think it's something we need to admit that 
um, once the synagogue and the church went completely separate directions, which was sort of a necessity, um, it wasn't it wasn't very long till you had some pretty nasty stuff that just didn't take uh, Romans eleven into into um, account at all. Uh, the, the warning right. that is there, uh, right. even even someone that we can. You know, uh, uh, Calvin, for example, wanted to write commentaries on some of the sermons of John Chrysostom. He never finished the work, mm-hmm. um, even though his he wrote the preface to it, which is has some of the most important stuff about Calvin's view of biblical authority that's out there. Um, right. But we look at Chrysostom, and he has just tremendous sermons. But then once in a while, you run across something, you just go, whoa, uh, as to what it's saying about the Jews and synagogues and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and it catches us out similarly to, I remember right before the, the celebration of the reformation, uh, we did a, a tour in Ger- in Germany and um, we visited the church where Luther preached last before he had his last heart attack and, and died. Well, mm-hmm. in Eisleben where he was born and died, but never lived, <laughs> which is a really strange <laughs> thing. Um, and so I'm sitting right, I'm sitting right next to the, uh, you know, the, the staircase, it goes up to the elevated, um, uh, platform. I, I notice you have an elevated platform too, but it is in a, in yeah. a gymnasium. So it's not quite the same yes. thing. Um, right. <laughs> I, I want to make that clear lest a blog post appears yeah. on someone's blog somewhere yeah. about Doug Wilson's yeah. the elevated, elevated platform, the elevated, elevated, yeah. uh, pulpit for, for Doug Wilson. But it, but you read just the last few sermons and unfortunately for Luther, they're marred with some just nasty, nasty anti-Semitism at at that, at that period of time. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's always made me wonder what happened to that section of Romans that it just seems to have gotten lost uh, for a large portion of what we would call the professing church. Uh, It is something to, it's a warning that I think we need to keep in mind. Yes, I would. I would throw um, a, a large agreement. I throw in one qualifier. The past was. Um, someone once said, "The past is a different country. They do things differently there." Right. Um, th- so we we have to recognize that there were a lot of things that we're not aware of going on, and uh, and it's also a mixed bag. The past is also a mixed bag. So after the first crusade was preached. There were outbreaks of anti-Semitism, uh, and there, there was a, about 900 Jews were burned in a synagogue in Strasbourg. That 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 happened, uh, but some of this happened because the people in the po- the populace were trying to get money for the crusade. They were they were trying to uh, do things like that, but there were there were instances of various bishops hiding, um, taking, receiving Jews into their homes, uh, to give refuge. So it's a mix. There were, there were, um, there were some not very bright spots, but there were some bright spots in this tawdry history. The other thing that's important to note is in the, in the seventh century, for example, right before the rise of, um, well, there were a numerous Jewish, the Babylonian Jews, in the early, um, late antique, early medieval period, um, had a number of kingdoms in Arabia. And one time Persia went to war with Byzantium and they, they promised the Jews their ancestral homeland if they would join forces. And the Jews provided some 
troops to aid the Persians, and they attacked Antioch, and they uh, and were when you hear horror stories about the Crusaders doing awful stuff. Uh, yeah, that that shouldn't have happened, and Christians should condemn every form of anti-Semitism. But the atrocities also went both directions, and the the lesson for us going back to the first three chapters of Romans is not that Gentiles are sinners over against Jews or that Jews are sinners over against Gentiles, but chapter one, the Gentiles are awful, dirty, rotten sinners. Chapter two, Jews are dirty, rotten, awful sinners. Chapter three, they're all in the same boat together. Right. Right. <laughs> the, right. The, the, the problem is not that, that we are descended from Abraham or that we're descended from Japheth. The problem is that all of us are descended from Adam. And and that and that is the the dilemma that Paul sets out in the first um three chapters of Romans. Gentiles are under sin. Chapter two, the Jews are under sin. Chapter three, everybody's under sin. And then he get, in chapter four, he lays out sort of the exegetical case for justification by faith. And then in chapter five, he lays out the theological case for justification by faith. So if chapter four is Abraham and the promises to Abraham, uh, in chapter five, it's sort of typology. The first Adam, the last Adam, uh, it's a theological case for justification. And then in, in chapter six, we enter the Q&A section, right? Um, so he's laying out the gospel. What should we say then? One of you, Paul has been in many conversations in the back of many synagogues because he can anticipate the question. One of you will say to me then, if we're saved by grace, why don't we send up a storm so that grace may abound? And he answers that. Then chapter 7, what's the law for then? If if, the, if we're not saved by law, what's the law for? And he goes into that in Romans uh, uh, chapter 7 and so on. So it's a very systematic, orderly um presentation of the gospel and the responses to the gospel and his refutation of the objections to the gospel and so on. You know, one thing that, uh, that really did disappoint me, Doug, I'm sorry. I just have to, I just, I just have to point it out. Um, you, you didn't have anything about the fact that, uh, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, um, provided a, um, inspired translation um, in Romans chapter four, uh, that said that God does not justify the ungodly. And <laughs> so, um, maybe you'd like to fix that now, maybe for a future edition or something maybe like I that. Could repent, repent and dust and ashes. <laughs> <laughs> Did, were you aware of that? I, I was not aware of that, but now, but now, you, now you've ruined my happiness. <laughs> Well, I hate to bring you into the real world, but um, yeah, no, I, I'm absolutely serious. Um, there is such a thing. And if, it, you know, if you don't have it, uh, maybe somebody up there will have to get you a copy. But there is such a thing as the inspired version by Joseph Smith and inspired version of Romans of Romans of the Bible. Because oh. see, did you not know that there's a missing chapter in Genesis? It's all about a future prophet coming named Joseph. You didn't know that? Hey, and there is. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, there's. Yeah. I'm going to tell you something. You know, I thought living up in Idaho, uh, you'd sort of be, you know, uh, up on the top level as far as Mormonism's concerned, but um, maybe not no, in Moscow. No, um, no. Well, well, all the Mormons in Idaho are 
down in the south southeast Idaho. Okay, it's a it's a day's drive from us, but it's more Mormon. It's it's more Mormon more Mormon than Utah. That section. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there is no place more Mormon than Southern Utah. Okay. I mean, okay. you can you can just disappear in Southern Utah. The Danites are still around, and it's it's that that's a wild wild place. But you're right. Yeah. Southern Idaho, Southern Utah, Northern Arizona. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of wondering when those those areas are just going to split off because the main Mormon church is just going off into La La Land. But um, but no, seriously, uh, if you look at Joseph Smith's translation, uh, quote unquote translation of Romans right. chapter four, he just could not understand the concept of God justifying the ungodly. So he said, oh, must have missed that. It's God does not yeah. justify the ungodly. Um, so, not. yeah, I, I would I would not suggest actually adding that. It was just simply for your um, your benefit there. There's some weird, <laughs> weird, weird stuff in the Joseph Smith translation. But um, anyways, speaking of that, so. <clears throat> Now, obviously, you and I aren't quite on the same page on textual issues, though, you know, we had a really good conversation at Sabbath dinner uh, last year uh, about yeah. textual critical stuff. And I'm I'm personally I'm not giving up on you. I think, I, okay. you know, I think there's there's a good a good chance of uh, throw, throw me a rope, brother. Just <laughs> throw me a rope. <laughs> well, let's. I wish all of my textual critical conversations were as friendly as when you and I discuss this stuff. Um, uh, it, it would be helpful, but um, there are there is one particular uh, textual issue, and I don't know how you handle this. I, I guess because you're primarily preaching from the King James, though I catch you doing a new King James uh, once in a while, you'll throw an ESV into the blog and may blog just for the fun of it. I, I, I'm, I'm not yeah, sure. I'm just, I'm just showing people my friendly liberal side. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, you've got enough ESVs out there that they started throwing them at you. You'd be in trouble. So, um, but um, I'm not sure. And, and this is, this may just walk us into a, an area that we don't want to spend too much time in, but, when um, when I preach through Hebrews, there are some really thorny textual issues in Hebrews. There aren't as mm -hmm. many in Romans, um, right. as far as manuscripts and readings and stuff like that. So, uh, for example, you you can't you can't ignore that in Hebrews eight, um, Hebrews goes with a minority reading. It's, it's in, there is, it's in the Hebrew language, but when it, when it says, even though I was a husband to them, that's the majority reading in the Masoretic text, but right. a minority reading that's in the Greek Septuagint is, uh, though I did not care for them. And that's what mm -hmm. the writer of the Hebrews uses is yeah. I did not care for them. And now, now, so before we look at, I'm, I'm thinking of Romans 5.1 before we get to that. How would you handle that? Because I, when I preached that, I was at a church that I was at. I ended up being at for 29 and a half years. And so they already know me. They already know what my background is. I've already done all sorts of stuff about the background of the text and manuscripts and stuff like that in Sunday school lessons and things like that. So I'm in a little bit of a different context. But if you were doing Hebrews 8, and I'm sure you have. Right. Yeah. And you know that variance there, and you know you've got people in in your in your congregation that that have their finger in Jeremiah thirty one and their finger in Hebrews, and they're doing this number, and even in the King James, there's a difference between the two. Right. 
So you right. can't you can't just hope no one notices it. You got to no, deal with you, it. How you, how do you how do you deal with it? If you preach if you're preaching the word and you believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of the word, you have to take things like that seriously. Now, uh, sometimes I think that those issues can be addressed via um, what everybody would recognize as a form of textual criticism. But when the New Testament, let, let's say the re- the received text that you have from the Old Testament is reads one way, and the New Testament quotes the Septuagint, and it's a different reading, um, or it's something like uh, a body you've prepared for me, or my ear my ear you have pierced, things like that. Um, there are one one of the things that that I um, rest in. And this might take this might be material for another sweater vest. It will see how it goes. Uh, I I believe that we should receive the canonical text, and there are times when I'll say something like, "I think we need to accept both readings, both readings in the sense that we look at this is the canonical reading for Jeremiah thirty one." And this is the canonical reading for Hebrews 8. And even though it's the same text, they have different readings. Correct. And if you said, now what's the... um, So I can preach both readings. If I'm preaching through Jeremiah and I'm preaching through Hebrews, I can just preach the text in front of me. And if I've got a biblically literate congregation, I should note the fact that there's this variation in the New Testament or variation in the Old Testament, but I want the people to come away with faith in both. Okay. Now, when the, when the new, when the New Testament writers quote the Septuagint, I don't believe that that's an endorsement of every reading everywhere in the Septuagint, but I, but I do believe it's an endorsement of the truth of that statement from the place they quoted. Okay. Right. In what, if they say something as the scripture says, and then they quote the Septuagint, then I receive that quotation there as scripture. Okay. Right now, if someone raises the question of what was the autograph of Jeremiah like, what, what was the reading when Jeremiah was not yet dead? Right. what, What was the reading then? I would say, well, let's say textual criticism might help you determine what that was, but the canon is still open. Even even though Jeremiah has finished his writing, the canon is still open. We believe that there is such a thing as inspired editing. Right? Okay. Okay. So 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 that's what the writer of the Hebrews is doing? Or I think either that or the person that he's quoting was doing. The person he right. was quoting. Okay, oh, you lost the, me. The, 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 the Septuagint the Septuagint oh, okay. scribe. Okay, okay. All right. You know, um, so God was with the Septuagint scribe who was rendering that passage such that it's the word of God. And so, okay, so when when Genesis is included in the books of Moses, even though Moses didn't write the bulk of Genesis— Moses was the editor of Genesis. He, you know, he puts it together and incorporates it into the into the Torah. So I believe that uh, inspiration is not just a question of authorship. 
inspiration is also a matter of collecting and editing. Right. Especially because what Paul says, it's the scriptures that are theodistos, not the writers. Right. It's, it's the actual, it's exactly. the actual result. Um, yeah, now that, exactly. raises, that raises all sorts of questions about canonical authority and when canonical text comes into existence that you may be right, maybe beyond our, our limited time frame here. But here's, here's the question I have for you. And I'm, I'm not trying to walk away from the, from the commentary here, but since it's, since it's on the table. Yeah, let's chase the squirrels. But we should chase the, we should chase the squirrels. Uh, the, this squirrel, I think, is an important one because as a person who does textual criticism, um, the difference between I was a husband to them and I did not care for them is the difference between but all I was a husband to them and got all I did not care for them. And a, mm -hmm. a bet and a gimel are very similarly formed letters, especially in more ancient Hebrew. And right. so here's, here's, here's what I'm, I know where I come down on this. So I'll mention it to you and see if, if, if you agree or disagree, we have disagreed uh, on sweater vest dialogues before, because if we didn't, this would be really <laughs> boring. Um, so, that has happened. Yeah. Yes. And it's, and it's a good thing. It happened. Um, and it bugs so many people to death that I can sit here with you or I can sit with someone like Michael Brown and we can disagree with one another without getting angry about it. That's what just drives people absolutely insane. But I would, I think it would be important to, to, and I'm sure I did mention this when I went through Hebrews chapter eight, I mentioned that reality to folks that this isn't a matter of someone was trying to edit the text, change the text. They didn't like what was being said they wanted to change things. Um, the, the fact of the matter is the vast majority of textual variants that are of importance exegetically are explainable as a simple scribal error. So mm -hmm. I uh, most people today would struggle to differentiate between a bet and a gimel um, unless you're really good with Hebrew. But if you're reading somebody else's handwriting, that can be a challenge. And to make the connection back to Romans 5.1, in Romans 5.1, we have uh, a, a textual variant between ekamen with an omicron and ekomen with an omega. Uh, let us either we have peace with God or let us enjoy the peace we have with God or something along those lines if it's in the subjunctive. And it's only one letter difference. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe God is sovereign over every single letter. Right. But the reality is that I think so many of our people here in the universities and the, and the, and the college campuses and stuff like that, that the changes in manuscripts are purposeful, but the vast majority of them, even Bart Ehrman will admit the vast majority of textual variants are, are completely innocuous. They're, they, they weren't purposeful. They weren't editing. They weren't people right. trying to make changes. Right. And yet that still leaves us with, okay, then why did quote unquote God allow that? Because, he did allow that to happen many, many times. And Bart Ehrman comes along and says, well, if it was really inspired, God would not have allowed textual variants. And I remember the first time I heard that, I'm like, what's he going to do? If, if, I'm, if, if, if I get distracted by something, I'm about to write the wrong letter, does he cause me to spontaneously combust? You know, does he, does he take me over and, and do automatic writing? And I go, whoa, where did, where did that letter come from? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't even know how that would work. 
Um, but and I would say I would say that God doesn't allow if if the if the textual variant or the slip of the pen or the um, you know the the scribal error is then picked up subsequently by another scriptural author and used in his quotation or argument, then I would say God didn't allow that. God used that. Okay, so it's not a matter. So God can use different things. He can use the editing process, and he can also use that kind of scribal error. He can also so um, so if it comes to me in the canonical text, and let's say all the quote, let's say Paul quotes the Septuagint, and it's a minority reading for the Masoretic text, but all the New Testament texts have this is the Pauline. This is what Paul wrote. I would say this is authoritative. I submit to it. I preach it because it's God, it's God breathed. And then I would do the same thing on my translation that's taken from the Masoretic text if I'm preaching through the Old Testament. So I'm committed to the canonical text. Uh, probably the best way to illustrate this is um, the last 12 verses of Mark. So nothing is more apparent to me, even in English, that the style and the hand of the last 12 verses of Mark is very, very different from the rest of Mark. It's Luke and... Um, well, it's it's somebody in. <laughs> well, it, it's, so, in other words, it's classical. Uh, Luke is the most okay, classical yeah. writer in the New Testament. Yeah. All right. So it it's also clearly somebody wrapping this book up after Mark had his heart attack. Okay. <laughs> so, hey, wait a minute, the book. Uh, the bro- bro- brother Doug. You and I are both uh, uh, past middle age now, so could you be really careful with the heart attack stuff? Okay. <laughs> all right, all right. I'll I'll lay off. So um, the the book is almost done, and someone in Mark's circle wrapped it up, and I have no problem saying this. The last twelve verses of Mark is canonical, but it's not Markin. Interesting. Okay, um, but it's canonical, um, and and so uh, you have the same thing with certain variants uh, that, that you cite. And what I want to do is I want to avoid the in what I regard as an enlightenment error error that wants to get back to the autographs, the pristine autographs, which are the only thing that are inspired. And we we all believe in the inerrancy of the Bible that Jesus has and that nobody else has. Right now, we have nine. You and I would agree that we have ninety nine point nine percent of the autographs. Right, right, right. So, everybody agrees. Actually, I, as, as as in our, I suppose, you know, you and I have really stunk at marketing that little book, <laughs> that little book, because <laughs> nobody knows we did it. Let's just let's just right. be honest. Um, but for people who don't know, you and I did a a written debate book on, I guess what you'd call the ecclesiastical text issue or something along those lines. Right. Yeah. Um, and I've never seen anybody advertising it. I don't even know if it's available to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I don't think they even sent me anything, maybe one copy or something. I'm not even sure. Yeah. I don't even know if I have it in my library, but anyway, it's out there. And in fact, you and I had done a, um, something credenda, credenda agenda in right. the nineties, if I recall correctly. Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. yeah Disputatio on the same thing, which is that right. on, is that on a website someplace? 
I think it's somewhere. Um, yes, a place. Yeah, we're we're tr- we're trying to get, we're trying to um, get those things sorted out. Right. The technology was different back then. Uh, yeah. So the, the the point being that um, I, I've said a number of times. I'm sure I said in that book in some context. I believe we have all the autographic readings in the in the manuscript tradition. I believe in the in the person not well the perspicuity de- text. Yes, the integrity of the text. And the 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 fact that it uh, nothing's nothing's missing, and so the illustration that I've used actually stole from Rob Bowman, is that what the New Testament manuscripts present to us is if we have a, a one thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, we don't have only nine hundred ninety pieces, we have right. one thousand one hundred pieces, yeah. and and the issue is we're not missing any of the originals, we just have to work through the added stuff later on. Correct. Uh, we we agree on we agree on that. Right. And so I, I filling in the gap here, we would also agree. Then I would think that if some archaeologist found the letter to the Laodiceans, well, that's okay. that's that's actually Ephesians. But anyways, uh, okay, work with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, th- I think there was a letter to the Laodiceans. So or or. Or let's say uh, something that Paul wrote that was not in the canon. Right. I think, and it were discovered, I believe that you're right, that that we have in our possession and have had in our possession the whole time the Word of God, and and we're, which we're supposed to read and sort through with our eyes open, grappling with all the issues. I agree with you that there are no gaps. So if a missing letter showed up, I think it would be of great interest, right? I think we should read it and and uh, help us fill in uh, understanding gaps. But I wouldn't want to incorporate it into the canon. I agree. I agree. Right. 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 But that does raise the issue of how the canonical what, what what the very term canonical means, and how it's defined, and when it is defined. Um, right. Because if you if you look at the last twelve verses of Mark, and they're not in Sinaiticus, they're not in Vaticanus, um, but they're cited by Irenaeus, um, you have differences, uh, and yeah. there's there, there's no there's no central organization in the ancient church to go stamp here. This is this is the the, the canonical form, and right. my my concern is is partly textual critical and partly apologetic because I have to deal with all sorts of churches that want to claim to have the authority to do exactly that. Right. And, and so uh, uh, the Westminster confession, all rise, uh, the Westminster confession says that uh, God (laughs) (laughs) provided. It says that God providentially preserved his word uh, throughout history. So I think that the, this is something that God does. I, I think church councils and men like Athanasius can, can, uh, coin the word, they can apply the word canon to it, but it's, uh, Martin Luther's example, I think is a good one. Uh, when the church is not in short char- in charge of what is scripture, um, even though it was the church that formulated the table of contents, Luther said it's like John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
John was not making Jesus the Lamb of God. He was recognizing that he was the Lamb of God. Right. And so what I do is I look at the course of church history and say, what has the church Catholic, small c Catholic, what has the church Catholic recognized and received as the word of God from the earliest times? Right. What did, what did the church fathers quote uh, as scripture? Um, even in the pages of the New Testament where uh, Paul says, uh, um, you shall not muzzle the ox, as, as Scripture says, and then he quotes Luke, right? A laborer is worthy of his hire. So Paul is calling Luke Scripture. And Peter says that so, there's some things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand, and ignorant, unstable people twist them as they do the other Scriptures, other Scriptures. So P Peter is calling Paul's letters Scripture. And there's, you know, what? who do they quote? Well, um, there are some allusions to the Apocrypha, for example, in the New Testament. Uh, people saw, you know, some were sawn in two in Hebrews 11. Uh, that's an allusion to the Apocrypha and other things like that. But nowhere is the Apocrypha quoted in the New Testament with the introduction as, as Holy Scripture says, they just don't do that. Right. Even though they they well knew the the, the material, um, uh, I, I doubt you had a chance to see it, but I've done a couple debates with Roman Catholic apologists on the canonicity of the Deuterocanonical or Apocryphal books. And in fact, it was fascinating. I, I did two debates with Jerry Matatix. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Matatix at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you you yeah. are familiar with him? Okay. He yeah. was uh, John Gerstner's favorite student. Mm -hmm. And he's the first ordained PCA minister to convert to Roman Catholicism. And right. uh, we did we did two debates at Boston College in, in the early 90s. And uh, he and I had both agreed that we were going to debate the Apocrypha and justification by faith. Guess which of those two debates was more pitched and pointed? The Apocryphal <laughs> debate was. Because it was more focused on the fact that fundamentally his argument was it's the church that determines canon. Right. And so you just you you believe us whether historically that makes any sense whatsoever to do or not, and so um, uh, we're we're sort of out of time. I could tell you the story sometime next time um, I'm up there, and we have Sabbath dinner. Remind me to tell you the story about the uh -huh. the white question uh, that that okay. I developed for Jerry Matatix because it's uh, it's very, right. very 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 re relevant. But uh, I think that's a fascinating area of how do we determine what the canonical text is especially when you have Athanasius uh, quoting certain things in defense of the Council of Nicaea, and yet somebody in Antioch is going to be quoting things differently. How do you deal with that reality at that particular point in time as well? I, right. I, think, the, I think the important part is we can't just put that under, under the rug because as an apologist, our enemies are going to drag that out from underneath the rug. And I've always said our people need to hear discussions of this within the context of faith rather than first encountering it within the context of unbelief in higher education or things like that. Yeah, I would, I would say that history, history is messy, and it's a good thing that God is perfect, not a perfectionist. <laughs> very good, very good, very God, good. God uses messy processes to give us his word. He does. Okay, so, uh, Doug, to the church in Rome, a commentary on Paul's greatest epistle uh, came out from Canon Press just recently, as far as I can tell. Yep. Um, yep. And um, so we appreciate that work. And uh, like I said, 
uh, I just think you need to, you know, work a little harder, a little faster. Just, you know, uh, you just okay. Say, I'll I'll get I'll leave right away and go pedal harder. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it, brother. Always enjoy <laughs> the you. conversations. Iron sharpening iron is a wonderful thing. And um, we'll see you for the next Sweater Vest Dialogue. Yeah, yeah great. All right, God bless. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to check out the full Sweater Vest Dialogues collection on Canon+. Plus.